Amen. How are we all this morning? Good. So today is the sixth week and last week of Easter before we move into Pentecost. So uh, this is the light. If you like Easter, you got what, this is your last week, last week to, to enjoy it. And then uh, we move into Pentecost. So uh, I wanted to look at a famous scripture and it's from uh, 1 Peter 2 verses 9 to 10. So 1 Peter 2 and verses 9 to 10. And um, I, I, I want to see, how, where can I start? So basically, what I am on the inside is not necessarily what I am on the outside. So on the inside, over the last several years, God's been doing a, a quite a, an interesting work in me and, and doing lots of things within me. Um, but as a church leader, I've kind of remained where, where I've always remained. And more and more I'm finding a disconnect between who I am in reality and the guy that you see on a Sunday. And that's caused me a few problems because it's like, well, that's, I don't feel like I'm being very genuine. And, and in part it's because I have a vision inside of me that I have thought that most Christians wouldn't want to go where I'm going. This is like, this is what I feel is my thing and my calling and where I'm going. Uh, and I think most, most Christians, well, I don't want to be a part of that. But as I've been discussing, like with my wife, went out for a walk last night and chatting and stuff. She she was basically encouraging me, saying, "No, you know, your job is to is to help pull, not pull people, lead people uh, to 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 where you're going, so that they can enjoy what you are in what you are currently growing into in God." And so that there's a lot of things that I never say to anybody. I never, I will never talk about it, never preach about it, because I have this vision inside of me which I am living and walking and breathing in every day of my life. Um, and I believe that what I'm walking in is a first fruits prophetically of what is yet to come for the church. Now, I, I have a real heaviness when it comes to the church because um, I'm not a fan of the Reformation, if I'm honest with you. And the reason why I'm not a fan of the Reformation is because how much bloodshed needed to be shed by Christians, whether they were Catholic or Protestants, both butchering each other and burning each other at the stake. Over 150,000 people, I believe, were killed in Europe alone during the time of the Reformation, etc. And since the time of the Reformation, we've had over now 150,000 denominations and uh, additional subsection, subcults and sects and stuff going on. We are a schismed, broken people. Yet Jesus's high priestly prayer in John 17 was, Lord, let your, let your church be one even as we are one. And it breaks God's heart that we are a divided people. It breaks God's heart that we are a schismatic and schismed people. And one of the things that I think that, that I think will, will, because we're going somewhere as a church, not necessarily you guys, but the church in Britain is going somewhere. Whether we like it or not, God is going to do something quite outlandish, I believe, in this country, where he's going to bring streams 
to a certain degree, back together again, not in a way that you might think, but in a, in a new way, yet in an ancient way. But we need to be, we need to be uh, in a place where we're receptive to the things of God and moving into the things and the heartbeat of God, what he has for this nation. And one of the things that I think is really, really important, above every other thing, you know, I've just grieved even looking earlier at our, our title um, that's on our screen here. Where is it? Oh, it's gone now. So up, if I just put that there, sorry. This one here. Jesus, worship, word, family. Do you think there's something majorly missing from that? Prayer. It's not even there. It's not even on most churches' mission statement. It's not on most churches' mandate of who they are as an identity of a people. It just isn't there and yet in this verse here second uh, this first peter 2 9 it says you are a chosen race a community of priest kings or or a a community of, of priests a consecrated nation a people god has made his own to proclaim his wonders for he called you from your darkness to his own wonderful light you are a chosen race a community of priest kings. The first thing I love about this, this verse is that we are a chosen race. We're not chosen races. I'm not a Baptist race. I'm not Anglican race. I'm not Catholic race. I'm not Orthodox race. I'm not Pentecostal race. I'm not Jewish roots race. We are one nation. Amen. You know, the Americans say it, we're one nation under God. Well, we are. We are one people. Hallelujah. And you know what? It breaks God's heart that we use theology as an excuse to divide ourselves. Because most of us only ever see things from everything from our side of the coin. That's why God gets us married, right? Because we see things from our side of the coin until you get married. And there's a, oh, there's another side to the coin, but it's still the same coin. Are you with me? It's one coin, but there may be different sides to the one coin. But it doesn't mean you're right and they're wrong. And it doesn't mean they're right and you're wrong. It just means it's one coin with differing opinions or differing thoughts. But there is one coin. There is only one body of Christ. And for the love of God, we have got to stop breaking it and schisming it and dividing it and subdividing and subdividing and subdividing and subdividing. It is an abomination to God that we keep doing this. It is an abomination that we keep subdividing the Bible, subdividing God's people. Who the heck gave us the right to go around with a knife and say, this one, this one's true, this one isn't, that one could be, that one definitely isn't. Who gives you and me the right to go around judging my brother and sister, unless of course they're in clear heresy, but who gives us the right to go around judging our brothers and sisters because they just don't believe what I believe about this particular issue of the atonement, therefore they're not saved or they're not true truly part of the church of Christ. You are a chosen race, a community of priest kings. 
You see, I stand here before you in one of the fivefold functions in the church. So you have the fivefold ministry, Ephesians 4. You've got apostles, you've got prophets, you've got evangelists, you've got pastors, and you've got teachers. Okay, some of them blur and mix together. But I stand as a pastor, right? That's one of, my, one of the fivefold ministries. There for the equipping of the church to the fullness of the maturity of the stature of Christ for the saints. Okay, that's the purpose of the fivefold ministry. It's a gift of Christ to the church. But am I? Is that my primary ministry? Is that my primary calling in my life? No. My primary calling in my life is actually to be a priest. Exactly. Everyone in this room, your primary ministry is not a husband or a wife or a father or a mother or a pastor or an evangelist. Your primary ministry is a priest to God. Do you know what priests do? I mean, you should do. You've all spent a long time reading the Old Testament, right? We all know what priests do. But do you know what priests are? So let's take the Levitical priesthood. For those that don't know what I'm talking about, in the Old Testament, you had the sons of Levi, and the sons of Levi were basically chosen by God and commissioned by God to run the priesthood. They were the guys that looked after the tabernacle. They guarded the tabernacle. The tabernacle is this big tent and this big meeting place where people could come and make sacrifices to God so that they may continue their covenantal relationship with their God. And so they were like a, a, an intermediary between God and between the people of Israel there to, to, to make sacrifices, etc. That was the role of the priest. But do you know what the role of the priest was doing? Do you know what they were imitating? A lot of people probably never even thought about this. But in, let's turn to Revelation chapter 4. And just, I'm just going to read some of this here. She too. After this, I looked up to the wall of the sky and saw an open door. The voice which I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I'll show you what will come in the future. So the, the, uh, John has been invited to come up into heaven to see what's going on up there. Immediately I was seized by the spirit and there in heaven was a throne and one sitting on it. He who sat there looked like Jasper and Carnelian. Around the throne was a rainbow resembling an emerald. So a green kind of colored emerald uh, uh, rainbow. In a circle around the throne are 24 thrones and seated on these are 24 elders dressed in white clothes with golden crowns on their heads. Flashes of lightning come forth from the throne with voices and thunderclaps. Seven flaming torches burn before the throne. These are the seven spirits of God. So what are you getting here? You're getting a picture of the tabernacle. So the seven spirits of God is the Jewish menorah. Okay, so that's the seven things. Uh, you've got the altar, the golden altar in heaven, which is the altar of incense. You've got the actual throne room itself, which is the Holy of Holies, where God the Father is seated upon his throne, etc. Okay, and it says, verse 6, Before the throne there is a platform, transparent like crystal. Around and beside the throne stand four living creatures, full of eyes, both in front and behind. So these are the cherubim, the seraphim, and on the Ark of the Covenant they had their wings over each other like that. And it says, And the first living creatures like a lion, the second like a bull, the third has the face of a man, the fourth looks like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures has six wings, full of eyes all around as well as within. And day and night they sing without ceasing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, master of the universe who was and is and is to come. Now this is all they ever say. 
oh, but aren't they guilty of vain repetition? No, because to them it's not vain. There's nothing wrong with saying the same thing over and over again. It's like liturgy and stuff. People say, oh, liturgy is, 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 uh, is religious and, and, that's, and it's just vain repetition. No, it's not. How dare you say that? When I, when I use liturgy in my own prayer life, to me it's rich and, it, and it's vibrant and it reminds me and earths me and grounds me in spiritual truths. So for me, it's very important. For me, it's very key in my walk with God. And I love it and I desire it. And it helps me focus on more loftier things of God's greatness. Hallelujah. And whenever the living creatures gave glory, honour and thanks to the one on the throne, he who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fell down before him and worshipped the one who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns in front of the throne and say, our Lord and God, Worthy are you to receive glory, honour and power, for you have created all things. By your will they came to be and were made. Now if we then move on to chapter 5, and we look at verse 8. Um, he says, When he took it, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders bowed before the Lamb, and they all held in their hands harps and golden cups full of incense, which are the prayers of the holy ones or the saints. Hallelujah. And then it goes on to verse 10, talking about you made them a kingdom of priests for our God and they shall reign over the land. And then I think then in, go to chapter 8, verse 3. Another angel came and stood before the altar of incense with a golden census. Remember, this is the golden altar of incense in heaven, not the one on the earth. And he was given much incense to be offered. And with the prayers of all the holy ones on the golden altar before the throne, and the cloud of incense rose with the prayers of the holy ones from the hands of the angel to the presence of God. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with burning coals from the altar and threw them on the earth. And there came thunder, lightning and earthquakes. So in the Old Testament, those Levitical priests they were literally mimicking the reality that angels were doing in heaven. Okay, so the priests on the earth were mimicking the reality of the heavenly tabernacle and what the angels were doing. Because angels are priests. You know, no, they're not. Quite clearly they are because they're ones holding incense lavers and presenting it to God and worshipping him and all these other things and they're the ones presenting extra incense on the prayers to make the smoke go up before the Lord etc they have a priestly function also in Isaiah chapter 6 when Isaiah says woe is me I'm a man of unclean lips it was one of the seraphim that came and took the tongs and took the coals of the altar which is in heaven and placed it on his mouth only a priest type being or one in the order of priesthood would be able to do that are you with me why is all this important? Because you and I are priests. Therefore, the model we should be imitating and mimicking is the heavenly model, right? Because that's how they were commanded to do it in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, only Levites could do it. But now in the New Testament, we're all of the order of Melchizedek. Therefore, we all as priests unto God have the right to do this, in that we should be coming before our God with prayer and with incense and with worship. When I say incense, I mean the prayers. I mean, if you want to use actual incense, feel free. It doesn't really matter. I'm not incense. It's that incense, bells and smells stuff. Well, that's fine with you. But when you go to heaven, you're in for a big shock because that's what they're doing up there. And that's actually why, just, just to say this from a historical point of view, why the early church, the Eastern Orthodox and like the Catholic and the Anglican church still use things like incense and stuff today. It's not just because they're trying to re-establish the Levitical priesthood, they're actually trying to emulate and imitate what's going on in heaven. 
And that's why in their liturgy, they use the same things in the book of Revelation. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. These things are placed in liturgy because they understood we as a church want to imitate what's going on in heaven and that we can join in with the communion of the saints. Remember that in the old creeds? Again, we have, as evangelical Christians, we have no concept, unless you're from a more traditional uh, background, what the communion of saints even means. It was an early doctrine, it was an early teaching of the early church, and it means that through, and this is why I put this here today, it's because the most important thing in the early church was not the worship pastor, was not the pastor, was not the evangelist, was not the prophet, was not the apostle, it was Christ and his flesh crucified for us. This was the focal point of the early church. And this is why church throughout all of the ages has had an altar. When I took this away like a couple of months ago, the old Holy Spirit's been like, can I have my altar back please? I want it back because this is not a church tradition thing. This is not a tradition of man. No, this, when the early church, first century AD, read the writings of the early church bishops of people like Ignatius, Athanasius, etc. from AD 100, and they'll tell you that this was the most important part of the church service. And this was, this was preeminent. This went up front, not the worship pastor, not the smoke machines, not the lights, not the big screens, not the glitzy, glamoury bands, not the, not the well-dressed pastor. It is the body of Christ is the central focal of the church. Why is this? Because we are all members of one body. You and I are all members of the body of Christ. The church is the body of Christ. The church is the body of Christ. The church is the body of Christ. This is not a bumper sticker. This is not an abstract one-liner that Paul came up with. The church is the body of Christ. And, if, and, and for, for people to think, well, Chris, you're going way out to weird stuff here. No, this is the very hallmark of the ancient traditional Christian faith. This is the hallmark of the Eastern Orthodox Church. This is the hallmark of the Catholic Church. This is the hallmark of the Protestant Church. That you and I are the body of Christ. And so when we eat of the body of Christ, because he said, this is my body broken and given for you. As we partake of this, as we eat of this bread, we are also partaking of one another, but not just of the church locally, but then the church wider, but also of the church in heaven. Because the saints who have gone before us are already up there now doing the whole worship thing and the whole praise and the whole praying thing. And so when we partake of one body, one bread, as one body, we are joining in the hosts of heaven and on earth. You may not be aware of it, you may not care about it, but it is a actual spiritual reality. And this has been the teaching of the church for thousands of years, but we don't talk about it anymore. And we are a royal priesthood, hallelujah. And therefore, Part, basically, the, the premise of what I'm trying to lay the foundation for today is that we need to change our culture. We've we, we got to move away from this kind of Sunday box model mentality. You see, one of the things that, and Tracy is aware of this, my wife, she, we went to uh, this Buckley Abbey in uh, Cornwall yeah, the other day. I'm never sure if it's Devon or Cornwall because we were in and out of Devon and Cornwall like a yo-yo, but... And we went there 
And because there was some famous historical guy that lived there in like, I don't know, late 1500s, early 1600s and stuff, they focused all the attention of this abbey on him and what he'd done to it. And that just annoyed me. And Tracy knew, said, you're annoyed, aren't you? I'm like, annoyed. Because no, this place was a house of prayer for, for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. And then King Henry VIII come along and he dissolved all of these monasteries. He dissolved all the houses of prayer. And from that moment onward, the church in the UK began to change. You see, the early church of Britain, for example, the focus was you had these monastic communities, these houses of prayers. The whole of village life, the whole of the agricultural life revolved around the church calendar and everything was synced into the things of the Christian faith. And it was the, uh, the monks themselves that then provided the, the priests, etc., to go out and do the whole church solemn Sunday thing. So they provided everyone for the local church building. But then you take away the very heart of the community. You take away those houses of prayer because everyone joined in a lot of those prayers as well. Even the Anglican Church, they stopped this in 1950. But basically, they would have morning song and even song every single day and you would go but after the second world war they thought ah let's knock that on the head i don't know why but they did now you just do it once or twice a week but the church traditionally used to be a praying church all of the time and the community and, and a monk-based community would pray seven times a day and people could come and join with them and they would pray it several times that throughout the day and then once that was dissolved by king henry the eighth then suddenly that model gradually just faded away and faded and faded and faded. Then we had another kind of reformation, then another one, then another one. Then we had Methodists, then we had Baptists, and then we had these, and then we had that. And every time that, we, that we've moved so-called forward, we booted off something of our past. We threw the baby out with the bathwater until today we have this modern evangelical Christianity, which is this nothing but of this thin chipboard veneer of what we have jettisoned off this massive oak tree of, of, of our culture, of our identity, we are, and even our church history. And, we, and now we're making mistakes today and coming up with the same old heresies that the early church did, and they had to go through councils and creeds to stop and, and wipe it out so that it wouldn't keep happening. And now today's evangelical Christianity is making the same mistakes that the early church made, which they stopped. But because we don't know our history, and because we've got rid of it all, we have no idea. We're walking down a blind alley. We don't know where we're going. We don't know where we've come from. And we're making the same mistakes that the early church made, that they had to have massive councils and church creeds to stop it and put it right. The fact that you here are not Jehovah's Witnesses is because of the early church. The fact that you believe in the Holy Trinity is because of the early church. You never came up with it. It was handed down to you. It was devised and finalized between AD 350, 400. And the fact that you believe in the Holy Trinity is because of the ancient church. Not because of you guys or me or a clever Bible teacher. And here's another thing. Most of the church is illiterate when it comes to the things of the Holy Trinity. They think that Jesus just is the son of God, but not actually God. There was a report done in America recently, um, well, a few years ago, and it was a study showing uh, evangelical Christians, how many of them think that Jesus is God? And it was around about 12%. 12% of Christians 
were the only the ones that believed that Jesus really was God. I've got that around the other way. So it's only 12%. The rest of Christendom wasn't sure. They believed that Jesus was divine, but he wasn't God. Which is Arianism, which was banned as heresy in the early church in 8400. The Athanasian Creed was written to ban the heresy of Arianism. Yet most Christians today, and I mean most, especially in America, they don't believe that Jesus is God. This is madness. I'm having a bit of a rant today, aren't I? I, I, I? The point is, is that I'm trying to highlight that we are a mess. We are more in a mess than we realise. We're more broken and schismatic uh, and schismed and shards of glass. And I believe this and we believe that. Therefore, we're going to subdivide, 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 subdivide. Do you know what happens to the human body when it keeps subdividing itself? It dies. And the body of Christ is dying. It's dying. This country used to be alive with Christendom. Now it's virtually dead. There's two or three percent of this nation is a Christian country. As in Christianity, sorry. That's it. It's a joke. And I believe God wants us to get back to the heart of what it's all about again. You see, when we made, when we made Christianity about the theology, that was a big, dangerous mistake. So what happened, you think, well, Chris, how can you say this? Because I've studied a lot of church history. And then I started studying church history from the other perspective. We only ever study church history from our perspective as a Protestant. Oh, you know, Protestants, we're right and they're all wrong. They're all going to hell. They're heretics. But we're right. And our church history lasts only 500 years. And one day I went to a church where they had a bookshop that was a Catholic bookshop. And I went into there and I saw all these books. I'm like, it was like an alternate reality. It was like, what is this? What kind of, what kind of Christianity is this? Who are these people? And, and then I started reading books on the Reformation from their point of view, not my point of view. And then I saw a very different picture of how brutal they looked to them as we look at them and think how brutal they were to us. And I realized the heartbreak. And as I studied and read further back in history and read various different ports from different people from around, all around Europe, etc., the heartbreak that the Reformation caused to the body of Christ is unbelievable. And we still have the hangover of the Reformation today. I've got news for us all. Reformation's over. What they needed to reform was reformed. Incidentally, they reformed their theology as well. Most, most Protestants don't know that. You know, why, why are you going on about this? Because what I'm trying to say is the fight's over. There's no need to allow your theology to divide us and subdivide us because we're called to be one nation. But the thing that can unite us is this, hallelujah, one body of Christ, one blood, one flesh that we all partake of. Hallelujah. And that we are priests unto our God. If you're an evangelist, praise God. If you're into this, but let me tell you something. And I've heard this. Who's ever heard this said? Oh, you know, prayer's not my thing. I only, I, that's only for the people that are called to it. Huh? That's as silly as saying, I don't feel called to breathe. That's really Pam's calling. She's good at breathing. She, 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 she does it all the time. You know, that's obviously her thing. She's a breather. 
So glory to God, that's her calling. She's a breather. You think, Chris, that's a stupid example. Exactly, because that's as stupid as we are sometimes. It's like, oh, prayer isn't my thing. It's not my calling. You know, no, prayer is your calling. Prayer is your thing, as surely as breathing is, because your primary function is as priests. We got half of Christendom wandering around going, what's my ministry? What's my ministry? What's my calling? What's my identity in the body of Christ? I tell you what your identity is. You are a priest unto God. Therefore, live according to what you are. Enjoy prayer. I'll end in a minute. But did you know, right, one of the things that we don't do in our churches anymore is, is disciple people on how to pray. You get someone who's saved. You go, OK, here's a Bible. Go to church, read your Bible, pray. Off you go. That's our disciple. That's, that's our level of discipleship. OK, and let's, let's hope they do. Let's hope they turn out all right. OK. Well, that's not a very good success rate with that. But one of the things that most Christians struggle with is prayer. And they don't realise that prayer is so rich. We have the prayer of faith, uh, James 5.15. We have the prayer of agreement in corporate prayer, Acts 1.14, Acts 2.42. We have the prayer of supplication, Philippians 4.6, Ephesians 6.18. We have the prayers of thanksgiving, Philippians 4.6. The prayers of worship, Acts 13. Consecration, Matthew 26. Intercession, 1 Timothy 2.1. And uh, was it uh, John's, uh, Jesus' prayer in John 17? We have uh, prayers of retribution, see Psalm 77 verses 55 and 69, or Psalm 7, 55 and 69. Uh, we have praying in the spirit, 1 Corinthians 14, 14 to 15, Romans 8, 26 to 27. We have praying liturgy. Oh, where's that in the Bible? Hello, it's called the book of Psalms. It is a liturgical book of prayer and a liturgical book of worship. Hallelujah. You know, it's not part of your daily Bible study. Oh, it's a nice story. It's supposed to be read and prayed and sung. Then we have meditation, prayer and reflection, Psalm 1-2, 19-14, 119-15, Psalm 4-4, 63 verse 6, contemplative prayer or silent prayer, Psalm 46-10, Hebrews 2-20, Isaiah 30 verse 15, Psalm 37 verses 4-7, to Psalm 62 verses 1 and 5, 1 Chronicles 16-11, Psalm 139, 1 verses 1-4, to hallelujah, glory be to God. I could go on and on and on and on and on and on. But there is no excuse, brothers and sisters, why prayer should not be the most important, the most exciting, the most grandiose, the most wonderful thing that everybody could ever do. Hallelujah. And fasting. Glory be to God. That's another thing. We don't teach that anymore, do we? I don't want to fast. I mean, if we all fasted a little bit more, we'd be doing a lot better, wouldn't we? You know, you've got all these apps that talk about uh, intermittent fasting. It's like, and Christians are doing this. They're nutters. Why are you doing intermittent fasting like it's a diet plan when you could be doing it for Jesus and still lose weight and get heavenly rewards? <laughs> you don't need an app for that. Just do what the Bible says. Skip a meal, use it and turn it to God. You'll be OK. You'll start losing weight. Maybe you need to walk a little bit more. But other than that, you will lose weight if that's what you want. And you get heavenly rewards as well. It's a win-win scenario, right? Hallelujah. And I want to finally end with this, is that prayer is about a rhythm. You see, I meet a lot of intercessors and some of these intercessors go burn themselves out for Jesus because they're just constantly uh, interceding, giving out, pushing through the veil, breaking into the heavenlies. And that will wear you out. That's what I call exhaling. But when you exhale all the time, what do you think is gonna happen? <laughs> Thank <laughs> you.
You've got to breathe. And so you've got to breathe in. And this is another thing people don't know about the realms of prayer is it's about you've got to breathe in as well. It's all very well you ministering to God all day long, but you need to be ministered to as well. You need to be sustained and refreshed. You need to spend time in meditation and reflection and contemplation in the things of God. I don't have time time for that. I bet you do. I bet you do. How much time do you watch listening to the radio, watching TV or your favourite programme? Because if we're really honest with ourselves, that's where the crunch comes. Is it's like, am I going to sacrifice something of my comfort zone and, and sow into the things of the spirit? Because really that's what it's about. You know, if you, if you travel to work on a train every day, you have a perfect opportunity. Just like sit there, zone out and pray or meditate on scripture or something. If you go to the toilet... You know, men are not being rude, it's probably a bit grim, but men like to, I don't know what they do in there all day, but they can, they can spend hours in there. If you're in there for hours, then just meditate and pray. Yep, don't do that. <laughs> just meditate and pray, hallelujah. There's no excuse why we can't pray. We can pray, Paul says, pray without ceasing, hallelujah, glory be to God. And so I just want to encourage us with that. I know I've had a bit of a ramble today, but it, it's, God wants his church to be one. And we are one nation under God. We're not schismed. We're not broken up. And God does not want us to go around chopping up the body of Christ like we have a divine right to do so. Because it's not your right and it's not my right. And we must be one people because that is the high priestly prayer of Jesus in, one, in chapter uh, John 17. And if you, are causing a, if you are causing a division in the body of Christ, you are guilty of breaking Jesus' own prayer. And his prayer is that his will and his kingdom will be done on earth. And Jesus said, I pray that my church will be one even as we are one. So if you go around dividing his church, you're in trouble. Hallelujah, we're all in trouble, praise God. Lord Jesus, I pray in your goodness and your kindness, you help us where we've made mistakes. I pray, Lord Jesus, where we have felt that we've had a divine right to rip apart your body, Lord Jesus, as though it were a piece of bread. Lord God, please forgive us for those things. And please forgive us, Lord Jesus, for the things that we've lost along the way in the journey, Lord Jesus. And please, Lord God, help us in our weakness to grow in the walk with you, to grow in that knowledge of you and to pray more and to seek you more and to fast more and to lay down our lives as priests and to lay down our lives as an offering to you, Lord God, which is our acceptable offering as priests to you. And we pray, Lord God, that you will sanctify us, make us holy and use us for your glory. And may your kingdom come on earth through us, your priests, In Jesus' name. Amen.